turn in your Bibles to the letter of Jude, which is the letter just before the book of Revelation. I'll be reading verses 1 and 2, and then 17 to the end of the book. 1 and 2, and then 17 through 25. Let's go to our God in prayer, asking for his help before we hear God's word read. Our Lord, our God, we pray that by the light of your word and through the power of your spirit, we will see truth, we'll see the truth that is your word, that we might be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Jude 1 and 2, 17 through 25. Here now is the word of God. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy Peace and love be multiplied to you. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Most of us have heard the phrase kicking and screaming. For those who haven't, It's a phrase used to speak of someone being forced to do something, and that person is complaining all the way. Mom might make the mistake of telling her toddler, tomorrow you're going to the dentist. What does the tyke do but complain the rest of the day into the night and when he awakes? The able-bodied but unruly child refuses to walk to the car. And so mom drags him out of the house, struggles to get the little one plastered to the car seat, and then drives off to the dentist. The whole time, the little guy is crying and trying to exert his dominance. At first, it's strong. No, you can't make me. And then, with a bit weaker voice, pleading, please, mommy, no. But mom knows what's best. And despite the boy's grief and anger, she removes him from the vehicle with her crowbars for hands. Sure enough, the child is taken to the dentist, whether he likes it or not, and clearly he does not like it. Well, this is the picture that some have of this reformed and biblical doctrine of grace, irresistible grace. We've worked our way, the first three, total depravity, unconditional election, and limited atonement, and now we come to irresistible grace. In this understanding that some have of this doctrine, 
God the Father drags his elect, kicking and screaming. He violates their free will, and by golly, he will bring them to a point of salvation, whether they like it or not. It is true that the elect are led by the Father, because without this divine leading, they will not come to him. But the leading is different from how others have portrayed this beautiful doctrine of irresistible grace, this teaching The elect are led to eternal life because they have the Spirit. Read again with me, verse 2. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, we've hovered over this verse a couple of weeks ago, and even last week a little bit as well, but let us go deeper into the rich mercies that come from the Spirit who hovers over us, his new creatures. And as we explore the irresistibility of grace, we mine then the mercies of God. Now, we might wonder why mercy is the focus here in a sermon that is supposed to be on irresistible grace. But of course, we must all remember that mercy and grace are simply two sides of God's benevolence, of his love for his people. Although I'm not advocating a change in language from irresistible grace to irresistible mercy, nothing perhaps would be lost in such a change. And perhaps another facet of God's diamond of goodness will shine brighter if we view it this way. And so what is mercy? What is its nature? What is its stuff? You know what mercy is. You've seen mercy. A person has mercy on another when by compassion or sympathy he seeks to relieve the misery, the suffering of another. A man has mercy on a homeless woman when by compassion he buys her a meal. Now, God saw us in our estate of sin and misery, and moved by his own good will, he sought to relieve us of that ever-darkening, ever-deafening distress of both body and spirit. As he peered into our dwelling place, God saw us not as homeless, but as living in the household of Satan, enslaved to this master's rule with an iron fist. He beheld our ashen faces, and on our backs the marks of a slave. Our hands were torn by the toil of the world, ruled by the prince of the air. And he had eyes to pity us. And with almighty compassion, he broke down the doors of the darkened kingdom. He set us free and brought us into his home, his eternal dwelling place, reigned by love. Such mercy from the loving Lord. But as we've seen before, not everyone receives this special salvation blessing, this mercy. There is mercy that is common to all and mercy that is special to the elect. It's a mercy that is common to all people out of the compassion that God has for all of his creatures. We read in Psalm 147 that for everyone, the Lord covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills, and he feeds the beasts their food. And we recall Jesus' words in Luke 6. We're told to be merciful to our enemies. But why? Because our Father in heaven is merciful to his enemies. 
These mercies from the Creator that are common to His creatures are intended to show His loving heart to all that He has made, which love is to move everyone to repentance. And the sad reality, of course, however, is that this Gracious mercy is too often spurned. It is ignored. It is even attributed to someone or something else, maybe a false god or the work of our own hands. I recently read a woman of a woman complaining. She, about seven years old, had done something for her longtime friend's son. The son was about to turn twenty-one. And this woman wanted to bless this son, her friend's child. And so she spent many hours working on a blanket. She was crocheting. She spent 900 hours and $120 for all the materials. And she gave this to her friend, that her friend would give this to her son, Oh, and she also gave $121, maybe because he turned 21. And the son gives this blanket back to the friend through his mom, of course. Keeps the $121, but gives the crocheted blanket back. Says, I only want designer blankets. Of course, this um, saddened the the friend who works full-time and wanted to to bless her friend's son. Such a gift that was spurned. Not everyone receives the common mercies well. Not everyone is led to that position of repentance, that transformed heart when seeing the mercy of God. But to the beloved... God hurls a javelin that is tipped with the sweetness of salvation that at once impales a dead heart and infuses life into it. The hearts of the beloved become then vessels of mercy into which God by his spirit pours his spirit of life, love, mercy, peace, grace, the redemption of sins. By his boundless mercy, he has triumphed over the judgment due our sins. The Puritan Richard Baxter calls us then to consider these many mercies from God. He says, delight yourselves in the particular discoveries of God's common mercies to the world and his special mercies to his saints and his personal mercies to yourselves from your birth to this moment both upon your souls and bodies and friends and name and estates and affairs and all relations. Consider how merciful God has been to the world, to the elect, to you specifically. He's challenging us to go digging for the gold of his mercy. And I challenge you today, to begin a week-long discovery of some of these mercies. Take five minutes every day, write down in a journal, on a sheet of paper, write down mercies, common mercies, special mercies, personal mercies for you. We'll have time then later to reflect on those and to give worship to God who is boundless in his mercy.
No mercy, wherever it is to be found, has its source from the Father. For this reason, God has called the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies. We bless God because it is he who rains down mercies into our parched spirits. We praise God because he alone has imbued life into our dead bones. We adore God alone because it is by his will that the Son was sent so that the Son should lose nothing and no one that has been eternally elected by the Father. We worship God because he alone, it is who, it's his good pleasure to give us his kingdom. Wherever we look, we are stunned to behold manifold mercies. The Puritan William Jenkins says, A fullness of joy, rivers, nay, a fountain of pleasures. In one word, in this respect, it is not so much a mercy, one mercy, as a bundle of mercies. This bundle of mercies coming from the boundless love of the Father by the Son and through the Spirit unfurls to spread out mercies to every corner of the new creation. Laid before our spiritual eyes, then, are the graces of justification, adoption, sanctification, assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, and perseverance to the end. We, who in our estate of misery were guilty before God, children of the devil, unholy and defiled to the core, we who were assured of God's hatred, we who were at enmity with the Father and with our spirits depressed into the sorrow of sin, we have received multiplied mercies by his gracious hand. Spirit who unsheaths these mercy bundles is the one who has sown the seed of the Son into our hearts that we might reap a harvest of holiness, that we might worship our God. Oh, how many have been the blessed recipients of this mercy. It would take us an eternity to count, to enumerate all the people who have been so blessed by the boundless mercy of God. But consider just a couple. You know the misery of King Nebuchadnezzar, the man who seemed to have everything and who attributed his success to the work of his own hands. He was made low by God. He was rendered insane. He was made a beast. He was made to eat grass like an ox. His body knew no covering but the dew of heaven that falls upon the just and the unjust alike. His hair was as long as eagle feathers, and his, his nails were like bird's claws. And it was through that state of lowliness, utter humiliation, that the Lord revealed this man's sinful pride and brought him to the point of confessing God's kingdom, God's honor, God's justice, God's glory. Oh, how miserable Nebuchadnezzar was until he found the Lord. And oh, the misery of King Manasseh, that son of the righteous King Hezekiah, who became king at the age of 12 His 55-year reign did not build on his father's righteous rule. Instead, he restored idolatry to the land. He filled it with every version of unbelief. He sacrificed his own sons on a pagan altar. And he communicated with the dead 
But the Lord used the Assyrian army to overrun Judea and to take Manasseh prisoner. And because of his miserable sin, he was placed in a miserable prison in Babylon. But in this man's distress, he called out to the Lord for favor. Can you imagine the boldness of that plea? To have spent a half century in wickedness. To deny the kingship that God has given you. To deny the lordship of king who is over you. To see the people that he has given to you. To rule and then to rule them in wickedness for a half century. And then to cry out, oh Lord, have mercy. What a bold cry. And God was moved by Manasseh's miserable plea and restored him even to Jerusalem. Such miserable men represent the misery of all of humanity apart from the grace, mercy of God. This mercy was not merited by these men. Nebuchadnezzar did nothing to receive this mercy. Manasseh did nothing to receive this mercy. Nor is this mercy merited by any of us. But it was merited. Verse 21 says, Keep yourselves in love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This mercy is from our Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly lived and died for the beloved. The only way this mercy can triumph over judgment then is through the merciful self-giving of the Savior on the cross to allow the Father to execute his hot wrath on the Son. His mercy, his merit becomes our mercy. A little while ago, I was watching some do-gooders. I don't mean that in any negative sense. They saw some people, and they wanted to do good for them. They saw a bunch of people at bus stations, and what they wanted to do was bless these people without a car by giving them a car. So they saw one person at the bus station and asked why he was riding the bus and didn't have his own vehicle, and he said, well, his his girlfriend had it and needed it for work, and it turns out they give this man a vehicle. Of course, the guy was surprised, didn't think it was actually happening. This must be a joke, but it wasn't. The car was right over there, and he walked the man to the car and gave him the keys, but he didn't just give him the keys to the car. He gave him money, money for a year of insurance, money for car registration, money for what he needed for the first year of maintaining this vehicle. You can imagine the surprise on this man's face. You can imagine how thankful he was to receive these mercies. This man didn't do anything to deserve this grace upon grace upon grace. And how little does this illustrate the mercy without measure from the Spirit? Truly, this mercy from the bosom of the Savior draws you to him, does it not? But in truth, for some, this mercy is not overwhelmingly pleasant. It is not sweet to the soul. For some, this mercy is just meh. Or even worse, it is licensed to dive deeper into sensuality, to deny the master 
deny their creator. Now, if I could, let me change just slightly my initial remarks. You'll recall that some understand this doctrine of irresistible grace portrayed as, as God bringing us kicking and screaming. Do not be mistaken. There is kicking and there is screaming, all right. We are kicking against the goads of God's grace. We are screaming hatred at him. While we are in Adam, we are entirely opposed. We are not neutral. We are very much against our creator. But we can give thanks to the Lord that he does not leave us in our enmity, but instead befriends us by his powerful mercy. We do not come to Christ unwilling, but we come as formerly stubborn enemies. He takes our mouths that once spat in his face and he replaces them with mouths that now shout his praise. We go from restlessly opposed now to restfully joyful in him alone. The difference maker, dear ones, is the spirit. Verse 19, speaking of the false teachers, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit which means the elect have the Spirit. Having the Spirit. What a mind-boggling statement for finite man to have the infinite Spirit. Oh, the ungodly have not the Spirit, but instead only the flesh. And as their minds are set on the flesh, they will reap the deeds of the flesh and will face eternal death. But the unrighteous turn righteous, the ungodly turn godly. These have that irresistible person, that all-powerful spirit who by his breath gives life to all in Christ. We have that spirit who cannot be tamed by man, but who himself tames all the elect by the cords of Christ's compassion. It is this spirit who Isaiah says will come upon his people like a pent-up flood. We who have the Spirit have been overwhelmed by the rushing waters of His grace. And from this posture, we say with Peter, Oh, not just the feet, Lord, but every bit of me. And every day, I need your mercy. I need your grace. And when we pray that prayer in faith, that prayer is granted. We always have life from the Spirit. The Spirit is with us from start to finish. The grace that Jude writes of is the grace seeing Christ in all his glory at his second coming. That's the the grace, the mercy that leads to eternal life. It culminates in his second coming when the, the heavens and earth being joined in one wherein righteousness dwells. That's what Jude has our minds set on. But that life has to begin somewhere. And he who began the work of life in us will bring that life to its completion, that we might see him who is the life. The blood of the Savior dripping from his brow, his his hands, his, his feet, his side, collects in a basin. The Spirit from on high swoops down and, and cradles the precious bowl of the precious life 
of the Lamb. And from this bloody basin, the Spirit sprinkles, he, he cleanses and enlivens you, both body and spirit. Jesus offered himself through the eternal spirit, and because of this eternal agency, we enjoy eternal efficacy, a permanent dwelling place of mercy from grace to glory. Or do not believe that you or anyone living right now is beyond this Messiah-merited mercy. Christians and non-Christians alike have regained interest in the man Jeffrey Dahmer. And this is because of the recent documentary on Netflix, which I've not seen, and I don't think I plan on seeing it either. But for some, Dahmer makes Hitler look like just an annoying roach. Nothing really too dangerous, but disgusting. Sentenced to 957 years in prison, this man tortured, played with, committed unspeakable acts on both men and boys, and put an end to their misery, finally, by murdering them. It was in 1991 that police spotted a frantic man, partly undressed, with handcuffs around his wrists, and who escaped from a man that he described simply as Satan himself, referring, of course, to Dahmer. And at his sentencing, he acknowledges the evil that he had done, But, of course, people were skeptical of this for good reason. But soon into his time in prison, he was sent literature, set out to debunk evolution, a worldview that he had heartily welcomed into his heart. And a stranger sent him a Bible. Through the study of creationism and a study of the Bible, he came to a position of faith in Jesus Christ and decided he wanted to be baptized. And so Roy Ratcliffe got the call to come and baptize Dahmer. And so he did, both, of course, with a bit of trepidation. And the interactions would continue every single week to study the Bible and for Roy to answer any questions that Dahmer might have, week after week. Over the next months, Dahmer would be interviewed by by many And he often expressed to Roy Ratcliffe frustration because every single interview, except for one, always left out his profession of faith in Jesus, his conversion story. In 1994, a man tried to kill Dahmer in the prison, but he was unsuccessful. And Dahmer said that, He was thankful, he was glad to be alive, because now he can continue to tell other people about Jesus. He was in the prison chapel, by the way. Seven months after his baptism, Jeffrey Dahmer was murdered by an inmate while he was cleaning the bathroom. So when it's all said and done, was Jeffrey Dahmer a Christian? I don't know. I'm not here to settle that question for you. But we can take him at his word, just like we would take anyone else at his word who says, I once was blind, but now I see. And we can examine over the seven months the fruit of that conversion, give him the benefit of the doubt. The question is before us, 
Are you uncomfortable with the idea of living in eternity with Nebuchadnezzar? Are you uncomfortable living eternity with King Manasseh who sacrificed his own sons? Are you uncomfortable living in eternity with Jeffrey Dahmer? Are they beyond the pale of mercy? This I know. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And this also I know. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who will believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious God, we behold even just a glimpse of your mercy from this text, and we await that fullness of mercy culminated in the coming of Jesus Christ. In the meantime, O oh Lord, would you, by your mercy, by your powerful grace, continue to work in us, to transform us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.